Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast today. This is episode number 326, and our guest is Jared Lyle from The Hunt and Fool. Last year about this time, we had Jared on the podcast in episode 269 to talk about tag draws, preference points, and your hunting opportunity. And in that episode, we kind of went state by state to discuss what their system was like and clarify do they have a point structure and if so is it a bonus point structure or a preference point structure or do they not use points in that certain state and we focused on the western states for species like deer and elk and including some of the other harder to draw species like sheep and goat today we have jared back on the podcast to talk about what's new for 2022 so once again we go state by state through most of the western states and talk about anything that's changed or that is new for 2022. And that could be changes in non-resident tag allocations, in the draw process, in regulations such as the use of trail cameras, etc. This was a very informative episode and a great one to have at this time of year as we're planning our hunts for the coming fall. Hope you guys enjoy it. Check out the link in the show description if you want to catch that previous episode with Jared or learn more about the resources available from The Hunt and Fool. Right now, though, let's get into this conversation with Jared. Well, Jared, welcome back to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. I'm excited to have you on again today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, you guys must be hard up for talent, but I appreciate I appreciate the offer. <laughs> no, it was good, man. We had you on in uh, February of last year, it was episode two sixty nine, and uh, I don't know if you recall much of the conversation, Jared, but we went into it wanting to talk about you know draw systems for people who are newer and even understanding like the basics of bonus points versus preference points and what have you. And uh, I listened back to it here recently and. Uh, I had almost forgot, but we, you felt like we almost got you in trouble a few times. So I just want to say, number one, thanks for joining us. Number two, thanks for putting yourself out there as you said that you did. Cause at parts of that conversation, you were like, I feel like I'm going out a really long limb with a saw in my hand, <laughs> but it was good. I'm pretty good at that anyway. So I'm sure I'll find a way to do that on this one as well. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, has your opinion changed at all on, uh, just point creep and point system in general in the West and that it's, it's inevitable decline or no, if anything, it's, it's honestly gotten worse. You know, uh, we've seen, I'm sure we'll end up talking about several of these topics specifically today, but we've seen continued decline in opportunities, particularly for non-residents. And as that happens, it just exacerbates the problem of point creep in general. So no, it definitely hasn't, it has, my outlook has not improved on these states that have super mature point systems that are outdated and need a fresh uh, overhaul. Mm, got it. Random. We will get into that, I'm sure. <laughs> what? Um, just we'll talk high level here. The how much are Western hunter numbers increasing? Um, like Idaho, for example. I know the non-resident tags sold out for, I want to say a good portion of the two thousands, early two thousands. And then I think for a lot of years, I mean, I know as a resident, I could go buy that second elk tag or deer tag whenever I wanted all the way up into the close of season. And then it circled back here recently to, um, uh, in your email, you sent us here too, specifically where this, this, um, kind of panic buying, you know, this stuff sells out immediately. Right. Um, so Idaho's was high, went down now is high demand again. Is that a trend across the West? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a twofold problem. I think one as opportunity shrinks in other States, States that still have doors that are so to speak wide open um, inherit, you know, Lewis and Clark style hunters, people who want to go out and have an adventure and, and see new country. So I think that's part of it uh, because we have seen shrinking opportunities in other States. But I think the other side of it is, is the world's smaller than it's ever been from a technology point of view. It's, you know, I'm getting ready to do a javelina hunt with my two uh, grown men sons here this upcoming weekend in Arizona. And, you know, I've got hundreds of waypoints dropped in. I've got, you know, all the water and access you could possibly drum up all pre-done through the comfort of my couch. 
And I think it makes it easier for us to go take chances on those hunts at whether you're already a Western person like I have been, or even if you're coming from Atlanta, Georgia, and you just want to come out West, it's, it's easier than it's ever been. There's a lot of resources out there. So I do think there's an increasing amount of pressure on the resource. As far as the total number of hunters in the U S if you look at it, statistically speaking, it hasn't really changed much uh, for, for a long time. And there's some great data available through like the national shooting sports federation uh, that really, you know, statistically supports the fact that it's pretty flat as a whole. Is that the one thing, the one argument I hear on that or thought, my thought process conversation I've had with somebody is that um, it's, it's flat, but there are just more people coming out West. Is there a differentiation? Is it flat? And, you know, cause back East is what 90% of hunters Midwest East right. and the West is a smaller portion. So is the West, doubled and you know is everybody crazy is there that much hunting pressure out here um or is it just like more people concentrated in areas well again i hate to keep sounding like a politician here but i think the answer (laughs) isn't very cut and dried i mean for one yeah people do come out they have more expendable time so you find people will come out for bigger periods of time. You know, I, I run into a lot of people during hunting seasons. I'm fairly friendly as a general rule. If I bump into somebody at a trailhead or like a block management sign in area, I'll typically try to initiate a conversation if for no other reason than out of respect to say, Hey, you know, what direction are you headed? I would rather, you know, head the other way and stay out of your hair type of thing. And in those conversations, I can't believe how often I find people who are like, yeah, I'm out here for three weeks. Like, you know, and they're my age. I mean, they should be working. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, so I think there's more time. And so then it feels a little more crowded because of that. But I do definitely think there's an increased pressure uh, in general for as, as it relates to competition for the tags. But the reality is, I mean, you mentioned it yourself, that the number of Idaho elk tags that have been available for the last 20 plus years, it has basically been fixed. Mm-hmm. So the notion that a lot of residents share, you know, when they kind of get cranky about this, they're like, well, there's more non-residents than ever. It's like, well, the, the number of tags is the same. Yeah. Now the people may be more technologically um, equipped. The people may be more physically fit, more willing to take risk. I mean, you guys build great gear for people to take adventure-based hunts and go places that quote unquote, you shouldn't go. Right. <clears throat> so I think that there's a lot of uh, I don't know, factors that contribute to that. But the reality is outside of a handful of states like Colorado um, right now and Washington state, ironically, almost every other state has had an operating non-resident quota for as long as our hunting careers have been in place. Yeah. It's so a, it's more of a feel than a, than a reality. Yeah. Okay. That, that's been my take on it as well. It's, it, it feels yeah. busy. I see, I like, I see busy trailheads and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I, but I know the, the, the numbers have been capped and for a long time. And I don't, I haven't looked in the 20 year history of Idaho, but I know that they, yeah, they used to sell out, they stopped selling out, uh, they're selling out again, but that number hasn't really changed all that much. Right. Um, so yeah, but even during some, that, a lot of it is perception and, and yeah. like I like your, the time thing. That makes sense. Guys, you know, you do run the guys that are coming out for 10 days, 14 days, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I need a trust fund. If you guys, if you guys got any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Well, yeah, just, I did want to mention up front too, because we're, as we already have, like going to hit stuff fast and dive deep. But for listeners who do want that base conversation on understanding the landscape of in particular, uh, the draw process, right? So pick your species, pick your state for most Western states, we cover a really good high level overview in that prior episode, which again was 269. Um, but yeah, today we really wanted to chat. It's obviously uh, planning time of year for many hunts and draw deadlines are rapidly approaching for many states. And I guess that's a, a good thing to mention is one of the resources, I believe it's right there on the Hunt and Fool homepage. You can tell me if I'm wrong, Jared, but you guys still have the draw deadline page, correct? We do. Yeah, that that's forward facing in front of the paywall. So even, even non-members can visit our website at huntandfool.com. And again, keep in mind, we can't afford the G. Uh, so there's, there's no G in hunting. It's Hunt and Fool. Uh, and yeah, you can, there's a lot of resources on the front side of the paywall that you can look at, including those draw deadlines. Okay, cool. So if you guys are planning, that's a great reference uh, to go check out right away, but 
we wanted to talk uh, quite a bit today about just really what's new, um, what's maybe changed. There's been regulatory changes. There's been changes in uh, allocations and just a lot. And you sent over just before the show uh, a great summary of what's happening in a lot of states. And so maybe we'll just start by kind of working through that. And there's a lot there and we'll see what else we can get to. Um but you guys will be sharing a lot of what we're discussing today, uh, kind of, it sounds like in document, um, which you can talk about if you'd like where that's going to be, but uh, dive in where you'd like. And Steve and I are literally right there with the listeners of just wanting to look at the landscape and understand what's changing and what's new and, and what should hunters expect. Well, yeah, that, that leaves a lot of landscape out in front of us. But um, <laughs> I think probably the thing that we see the most <clears throat> in the last few years in particular is there, are, and we, we've already touched on it several times in this conversation, there's a lot of frustration from resident hunters, uh, whether that be subsistence hunters in Alaska to just recreational hunters in Idaho and wherever else. And there's a lot of frustration at what they feel is a shrinking landscape, more competition for the resource, more non-resident hunters, et cetera. And of course, you know, unfortunately, state legislators have to, you know, and commission uh, groups have to try to cater to their residents to a certain extent. So I understand it. But again, so much of it is perception-based. Um, and part of it is, you know, like I'll use the Utah uh, over-the-counter archery hunts here in Utah. Um, there's some units that you can harvest any bull, for example, in, and there's others that you can only harvest a cow or a spike in, depending on the season dates, et cetera. But if you go to some of those units, which I spent a fair amount of time early on just trying to fill the freezer with a cow or a spike, um, the amount of just outdoor recreators also makes it feel more crowded. And as hunters, mm -hmm. you know, I was always like this. My dad, you know, trained me to be this way. And probably his dad did too. If you're heading up the mountain and you see headlights ahead of you, it's a competitor and they're headed right to your spot, you know, period. It doesn't <laughs> matter that that person might just be out, you know, recreationally riding a side by side with their family or whatever. So as the woods becomes more crowded with multi-use uh, recreational uh, activities, I think that also lends itself to this. Um, and in particular, like I said, in the high country in Utah, I could not believe the number of people who are just out riding a side by side and it sort of feels like they're hunters, you know, as I'm driving by, I'm like looking over the side of their, the back of their rig to see if there's camo or an archery target or a bow or whatever. So <clears throat> anyway, where I'm going with this is, is that there's been a lot of pressure on game and fish commissions to shrink those non-resident opportunities. And we've, I don't think I've ever seen a more targeted attack at it than I have in the last few years. So I, mean, I, I threw out Alaska subsistence to start with. I mean, I guess we can start up in the great North state, you know, the, the caribou herds in Alaska, as we all know, have ebbed and flowed. It's just part of the nature of that beast, so to speak. Um, they're currently doing very well, uh, particularly up like out of unit 23 and 26 up out of the Kotzebue area. There's uh, 26A specifically. And there's been a ton of people like we, we, we refer so many clients to go on a, on a transported hunt, basically. So you're, you know, you go up there together with a group of buddies, you hire a local transporter to fly you in and drop you off. There's some logistic support. They're not allowed to tell you, Hey, there's caribou over here. They're literally not allowed to coach you whatsoever on your hunt. It's a, it's a DIY hunt that's supported with the best technology in the world, AKA, you know, uh, airplanes etc. And that hunt has been a lot of fun for a ton of people. The reality is the impact has been very statistically insignificant when you look at the actual harvest. But, you know, if you live in Kotzebue year round as, as a, you know, as somebody who relies on subsistence hunting, then it feels like a lot of pressure, just like we're talking about. And so there's been a lot of pressure back to the state last year, it got shot down. It came up again this year. I don't think it's going away anytime in the near future, but basically trying to say, you know, non-residents shouldn't be up here hunting our caribou. And the reality is there's north of six figures worth of caribou in that area. So uh, we're not really impacting it very bad, but it feels bad to those who live there. Yeah, no, we, Mark and I have hunted caribou out of Kotzebue and that's I, I'm somewhat familiar with that. Um, yeah. And what was the, do you know, the numbers of, of harvest by non-resident hunters? I mean, it's, it's basically insignificant. Yeah. Um, 
I better check this after we get yeah. off the podcast. But the reality <laughs> is I think it's somewhere around the neighborhood of like 300 to 600 total caribou being harvested. It's not very many, Yeah, you know, um, out of, you know, a hundred plus thousand herd. Uh, but again, it just feels like a bunch because everybody converges on the town of Kotzebue mm-hmm. and, you know, relies on all the resources. And of course they probably get a little rowdy and carried away uh, celebrating pre and post hunt. And to the, to the locals there, it might feel a little egregious, I guess. <laughs> when, were, when were they there last Mark? 2019? Uh, 19. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the uh, shuttle service, like said, like we were not allowed to walk around town like they did because they were having I think, so many issues with the resident people up there getting pissed off and yelling at the non-resident hunters that they didn't want us to basically, they were going to drive us if we needed to go to the store or get over to the hotel or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that, no. And, and I understand why too. Like I said, I have seen it firsthand where, <clears throat> you know, the group, the, the, the gang gets a little rowdy too. Yeah. 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 yeah I can see Which that. there alone is a valid point of, you know, ooh whether you want to say it's illegitimate or not, like the way that hunters represent themselves in the end is going to matter period. A hundred percent of the time, like I said, be, um, from friendliness to respect to understanding the local community to the extent that you can, all of the above, we should be practicing because we are our own worst enemy, especially in those little environments. Or like I said, again, Kotzebue is not a place I'd want to live year round. And for those who do, I owe the respect to them to show up in their town and, and contribute to their economy and not take away from their community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Is that one of the, because I have seen that come up and, you know, those talk of closures, which would be massive closures. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other things in Alaska? Is that really where, where the focus has been the last couple of years is kind of for those unique units of that caribou hunt in particular? That's probably the biggest concentration. I mean, there's always, you know, in Alaska, there's always a fine balance between subsistence. You know, it's like the moose hunts in Alaska. The main reason why there's a moose draw in the central part of the state isn't because they're trying to improve the trophy quality. It's because they're trying to limit non-residents from competing with residents for what is a primary food source. And so, you know, sometimes we confuse draws with trophy and nothing could be further from the truth in most of the moose draws in, in Alaska and again, they're just trying to make sure that the residents who rely on moose for food can get it. And non-residents are limited in those areas that it's easier to get to with, you know, for ATVs, uh, moose buggies, uh, souped up four-wheel drives, et cetera, because a lot of that central part of the state is accessible by vehicle. There's literally no off-road restrictions whatsoever. It's just, if you can get there, you, you know, go for it, <clears throat> which sounds easier than it. It's easier said than done. It's one of the most rugged. I've done that hunt twice uh, when I've been lucky enough to draw it. And it's arguably the most rugged, rough hunt I've ever been on in my life, trying to get an ATV 30 miles into the backcountry, uh, winching, tandem towing, fixing flats, rollovers. <laughs> I mean, you name it. Um, but the point is they're trying to protect the resource. So there's always in Alaska, there's always a balance between subsistence and food and a recreational opportunity for those of us who also are there for food and other resources too. Right. But, but we're not living in these communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Skipping about the alphabet. Uh, one of the things that was on my radar here just recently, as we talk about Arizona um, was you know, part of what I want to discuss is really anything new that's changing. And they have, I think, what's a complete ban of trail cameras or what can you enlighten us on there? Because I know that's happening in Arizona. There's been some changes, I believe, happening for 2022 in Utah around trail cameras. So anything you can enlighten us on on that topic would be great. Yeah, Utah's just broke a couple of weeks ago or within the last two weeks. Utah now has also completely banned them after July 31, I believe. So beginning August 1. The key to remember here in both of these cases, and this is what, you know, you see memes and stuff floating around the internet. <clears throat> the, the key phrase is you can't use them to aid in the taking of wildlife. And so that becomes really complicated and convoluted, right? <clears throat> it's, well, did you hang your camera just to observe and take cool pictures? Or are you trying to like, you know, get inventory on big bulls and big bucks. So it creates a little bit of a mess for, you know, conservation officers in the field. And it creates gray area for those resource abusers who would go ahead and cut the corners. 
So I'm never a fan of those sort of gray areas. Having said that, it does outright say that in Arizona, they are completely banned for the aid of taking of wildlife. And in Utah, they are from, uh, I believe it's August 1 through the fall now. Why even August 1? Like, what's the... That doesn't make sense. I mean, they're saying the animals are give chance to move to a different place by the time you'd hunt them. <laughs> I don't get it. It's messy, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, Nevada does the same thing, right? They have an early ban on trail cameras too, where they, you've got to shut them down. I believe it's identical. I believe it's lockstep with Utah. Um, I think in some ways they're trying to improve the hunting experience by the time the hunt actually starts, which both Nevada and Utah, they have hunts that start in August, uh, always from deer to antelope to elk. So I think they're trying to improve the hunting experience. Like when you hike into a remote base and then you pop into an elk wallow and you don't see six trail cameras staring at you. Um, I think that's probably part of it. And then the other part is, is yeah, I think there's a, you know, I think for the most part, animals do make a lot of changes from the time they go from velvet to hard horn, hard antler. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's just the bottom line is, is it's messy and it's a reaction to, again, a handful of individuals who tend to complain the loudest and get the most results. Um, I'm going to use Arizona. I'm going to, I don't mean to skip on you here a little bit, but Arizona, you know, bear mountain lion and bobcat is slightly under attack right now. And the, one of the game and fish uh, officials that's, that's reporting on this basically said, well, we get a lot of complaints about hunting those and we don't get any support for hunting them. Well, of course we're not supporting hunting them because we take it for granted that we're going to be able to keep those hunting opportunities open. Right. But, but that's how a lot of this happens is they get a lot of grassroots movement against something that's already legal. And all of us who assume that it's going to stay legal for the foreseeable future are obliviously tracking along, not knowing what is going on behind the scenes. What does it look like from a practical level? Um, meaning how should hunters engage state wildlife agencies to ensure that they're communicating the value of the opportunity to those agencies, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think that's probably one of the, you know, we've had several organizations that have attempted to do that in their own ways. You know, you've got like SFW in Utah, um, you've got quite a few 501c3 organizations that they'll kind of take up a certain bias, like wolves, for example, or mule deer or elk or whatever their, you know, their camp is built around. The problem as I see it right now is we don't have a watchdog, like an independent watchdog that's out monitoring the pulse of these game and fish agencies and, and understanding what the conversations are behind the scenes to notify sports people of what they're potentially up against. And so everything we get is sort of reactive and it's like, oh, submit your comments by January 5th or else. And we're all very, you know, the world is busier than it's ever been. I, like I said earlier, it's smaller than it's ever been, but it's also busier than it's ever been. And, and all too often, we either A, don't even understand, well, is it going to do me any good to comment on whether or not spring bear hunting is banned in Washington state or not? It, as soon as they see that I have a Utah address, is my, is my comment a waste? So we don't have anybody that's really pioneering that. So if you guys could just do that in your free time, that'd be great. On it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I mean, it, like when you said that earlier, Mike, you know, just take it like a super extreme example. Should I send a thank you card to, you know, whatever agency or, uh, you know, after a hunt, right? And it's like, just want to let you guys know, I really do value this opportunity to hunt elk and, you know, thankful for this. Because it's like, I mean, what do you do? Because, but you're right. We live in such a reactionary state as hunters. And until something's a threat, we're just quiet and we're doing it. Um. But yeah, it, it, there's obviously going to be more and more things to quote unquote react to uh, now and in the future. So can we cut any of that off before it gets to that point uh, is an interesting thought. Well, I do think, you know, to, to give you guys a feather in your cap and we try to do the same thing, same thing through our podcast, you know, pod, the media formats that we have today are better than they've ever been for distributing a lot of information quickly. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for 
you know, groups like you guys who are trying to, you know, keep the word out, out not only about great gear, but also about like how to, how are we going to protect opportunities to use said gear as opposed to losing them over time? So I think that's important to keep talking about it, to keep, you know, we had the Arizona Game and Fish Commissioners, two of them on our podcast a, a year and a half ago when this trail cam ban was first being, you know, set forward. And to the extent that we can stay in connection with those people and get a dialogue going and, and, and get that information out to the constituents is important. But again, I would love it if we had some sort of a, a legitimate watchdog organization that was really keeping their finger on the pulse of bad state, uh, state agency ideal ideology and could report it to the hunting community. And, and like I said, unfortunately it, it does not exist to my knowledge under one roof yet. Um, let's stay on Arizona. Another change beyond the trail cameras um, is a new hunter education opportunity that's tied to a bonus point. So fill us in there on what's happening with that. Well, Arizona is all about the Benjamins um, <laughs> and I'm not trying to pick on Arizona because most of the states are, uh, this one's kind of disheartening to me being a, being an individual who took the time to travel clear to the state of Arizona and invest two days to go to their field practicum and earn my permanent hunter's education, uh, safe, safe Arizona hunter uh, bonus point. Now they've made it where you can do it online. And uh, of course it happens to be $300 to get it, which is convenient for them. Uh, but you can actually take this course, do it all online, shell out 300 bones and get a permanent hunter education point, which applies to all species. So let's say for example, you're applying for deer elk and antelope in the great state of Arizona. Um, and you get lucky and draw all three in the same year, you will start the next year with one point for each of those species right out of the gate again for all species that you apply for. So you'd have one for turkey, you know, and bison and you name it. So um, the hunter's ed point is valuable. Uh, again, it costs $300. It's, uh, you know, a couple of hours realistically to get through it if you've got a pretty good hunter ed background already. Mm. And you used to have to go do it in person. And so, like I said, it was a big barrier to entry. And, and I did that back in the day. And now, like I said, they've made it to where you can do it all online. They also have, I mean, for others that don't aware, aren't aware of this, they also have a loyalty point that's species-based. Like the hunter ed point is across the board for all species. The loyalty point is species-based. So if you consecutive apply, consecutively apply for five years for any given species, you earn another extra point that you maintain as long as you continue to apply for that species. So theoretically, let's say you had 15 deer points and you drew a deer tag finally, um, you and you had the hunter's ed point and you had your loyalty point, which you would have because you've been applying for 15 years straight, uh, you would start right back into the deer draw with two points the next year. Okay. The, taking the hunter ed point virtual, is that, did they communicate that as like a COVID type thing with people not traveling and yada, 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 or was it not pitched that way? No, I'm sure that's how they pitched it. Um, in fact, you know, it became pretty popular for a lot of states to offer online courses, which were convenient for people who were trying to get young people, like sub 12 years old, enrolled in hunter ed courses. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of kids that were, you know, nine to 12 years old got their hunter's ed uh, done because of the, because of COVID. Um, yeah, I'm sure they pitched it that direction, but at the end of the day, like I said, it's convenient for them that it costs $300. Uh, it, you know, it puts money in the state coffer. Yeah. All right. Colorado, always, uh, an interesting state to consider <laughs> with many challenges. Uh, what's new, what's potentially changing in Colorado that you're aware of? Well, Colorado, you know, is, is interesting. I mean, obviously probably any sportsman listening to your podcast uh, knows that they voted to reintroduce wolves into the state no later than the end of 2023. Um, there is still no management plan for that at this point in time, and they cannot complete the reintroduction until there is an approved management plan. But in a state that has the largest living elk herd in the world, uh, we all know elk wolves are hungry. They're going to eat. They're going to they're going to blow up pretty quickly. Populations will adapt over time, but it is going to impact hunter opportunities for sure in Colorado. 
Um, so that's one thing that's been recently adopted in Colorado that we're going to see a major impact over the next few years. Did they state how many wolves they're going to start with? No, again, that's part of what needs to be adopted into the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Are you aware of how they're structured or at least engaged in developing that management plan? Because obviously that the rule of the introduction was very legislative and not necessarily driven by fish and game. Do hunters, whether that's at least theoretically through, through the fishing game or in some other way have a seat at the table right now on the management plan that is being discussed that you're aware of? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, you know, like all public agencies, there will be, you know, a comment period and an opportunity, you know, for the public to have some level of input in the process. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't started yet. I think the biggest challenge you already touched on it, and that is that, you know, very few states, if any, that I'm aware of have the opportunity to operate autonomously as it relates to biologically taking care of the state's wildlife resources. It becomes a political slash biological slash special interest quagmire. And I think in this particular case, you know, so many states have too much legislative input on biological decisions. And I don't think, I think Colorado is going to pay the price for it. Not Colorado, uh, Colorado wildlife and Colorado hunters are going to pay the price for it. There were some changes on season dates with Colorado, as I understand it. Is that uh, correct from what I saw in the email you sent over? Yeah, they did vote to add some days between seasons to allow a, a little bit bigger break for wildlife, which is good. Colorado hunts the crud out of their animals, you know, first, second, third season, fourth season, you name it. Um, so they added some days in between. Uh, the downside is it pushes things back even further into some of the season dates for more rut, particularly for deer. So it's probably going to have, you know, a decrease in age class consequence over time, but it is nice break to have between the seasons, especially, you know, it's, it is frustrating if you wait a lot of years to draw a tag and, you know, your, your people are hunting right up till the buzzer of when you can start your hunt. Sometimes that creates an even bigger feel of crowding. Mm. Yeah. With all the overlap. Yeah. And I mean, as it relates to Colorado too, I mean, Two other things. One, you know, as these other states continue to cut opportunities, Colorado is is going to follow in kind. I think the days of Colorado over-the-counter seasons being super easy to pick off. I mean, as it stands right now, archery, second rifle, third rifle permits are still available for a lot of units for elk. Over-the-counter, unlimited. And I think it's only a matter of time before we see a cap on those tags and they go to a draw as well. Yeah. If you had to guess, would you see that happen in a, a continued manner that it has, meaning there's there's kind of fewer and fewer OTC archery tags by unit per year, or do you see a, a kind of a sweeping change to the structure of that? Unfortunately, I think they've got it down low enough in the funnel now that I think it's going to be a sweeping change. I think once they finally decide that they're going to have to eliminate this just come one, come all approach. I think if they keep trickling it down to where there's say 10 units left with unlimited second rifle elk tags, the number of people that would flood that particular, those 10 units would just mm-hmm. be astronomical and unfair to the wildlife probably. And to, you know, the participants who hunted those units for years. So I think they're going to have to like, I think they're at the point now where they're probably going to make a, a sweeping change. Mm-hmm. Got it. Bump it down the list uh, to Idaho. It, you brought this up earlier, and I never really thought about it this way, but with Idaho's moving their dates early to December 1st for tags, uh, it creates somewhat of a, a rush on that, which you know is self-sabotaging in a way. <laughs> um it's been interesting to see that it's the second year now uh, take place. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things with this new non-resident process for Idaho where people who get lucky are happy. And then there's a lot of people who, who just aren't happy. But uh, any other changes you foresee in Idaho um, 
or any other ideas you may have of changes you may see moving forward just based on how things have gone the last couple of years? Yeah, I think they're definitely going to have to change the way they actually allocate the tags. Um, I honestly thought there would be no way they would do it two years in a row, and they did. Uh, December 1 was just as big of a disaster this year as it was last year. Um, I don't have a problem with them allocating the tags the year prior, you know, forcing people's hands to get get together sooner and figure out what they want to do. The biggest problem that I have is hunting is a community-based endeavor. endeavor. Um both like at a small microcosm level, like me and my sons, for example, going to hunt Havelina this weekend in Arizona, um, all the way up to the macro level where we're all part of the hunting community and allocating tags the way they're doing it right now, Idaho is 100% creating a draw, period. Like if you read through how it's structured, everybody logs into a virtual waiting room uh, prior to those tags going on sale at 10 a.m. on December 1. Um, So if you log in at say 9.30, let's say there's 25,000 of us or 50,000 of us competing for these tags. They dump us all into a virtual waiting room. Right at the moment of truth, they, they assign a random number to everybody who's in the virtual waiting room, quote unquote, that's a draw. And that's exactly how a draw is conducted. And then your random number dictates your pace, your place in line. And then effectively, you're just hoping that your tag is still available with whatever random number you were assigned. So they're conducting a draw, but they're not giving any of the benefits of a draw the most crucial being a party system. So again, if I want to hunt with my son, or let's say that the three of us wanted to plan a hunt together and we all three wanted to get a tag, there's literally no option for that whatsoever. So now, Steve, you might get a tag. Jared gets a tag. Mark, you don't get a tag. Or worse yet, I'm going with my 13-year-old son and I try to get him a tag and he can't get it and we can't hunt together but I already got stuck with a thousand dollar elk tag, you know, between the hunting license fee, the, uh, the uh, non-resident tag fee and a $82 archery permit that they force on me for an archery only tag that I buy. And anyway, I'm like 951 bucks in, I got a tag and I can't even hunt with a buddy. So it's a really, it's honestly irresponsible to the hunting community on a macro and micro level. And they need to change it. I hope I was listening. I'm out on a limb with a saw. <laughs> we put you there again no, yeah I, I have not been a fan of how they've done that the last two years it just doesn't yeah yeah whoever threw that idea it just doesn't make sense yeah. like i said it's a draw they're they're yeah. literally conducting a draw so let it be a draw let, and quite frankly they can make a little bit more money charge 10 bucks an application fee or whatever else and all fifty thousand of those people in the virtual waiting room will throw the extra ten dollars at them and at least then they can either both get a tag or, you know, all three, four members of their party get a tag or nobody gets a tag. And then you're not in this weird limbo of, well, I got to go to Idaho by myself from Florida now. And I don't even have somebody to share gas with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's such a valid point. I mean, on, on December 1st, I was, I had six different text threads going right with like people mm-hmm. across the country. It was like, what, what spot are you in? And guys trying to plan, but can't. And it, it is an issue. It's a real issue for sure. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And I hope they're listening. All right. Montana, what changes are happening or foreseen in Montana? Well, one of our hunt advisors that writes, you know, one of our, many of our state sections uh, was talking to one of their, uh, the head of wildlife there. And at the end of that conversation, he said, have, has Montana contemplated just burning the whole system down and starting over? <laughs> you know, And, uh, <laughs> not to be disrespectful, but Montana, if you're listening, you need to burn it down and start over too. Um, This year, they're going to increase their non-resident preference point fee from $50 each to $100 each, which is an egregious cash grab, in my opinion. Um, And they've made it even more complicated, you know, already. And we talked about this on the last podcast, I think. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but Montana already has a, a hybrid system where you use preference points to draw your big game combo license for your deer tag, your elk tag, or your deer and elk tag. And so you use preference points for that. And then you use bonus points to draw special limited entry tags on a unit level. And so it's already a mess. And now in the past, you could go up to the third year without going ahead and putting your name in the hat with your preference points before they would purge them. Now they're going to purge your points on year two. So you've got first year, Steve needs to buy a hundred dollar preference point to get ready for the draw. Second year, he needs to spend another hundred bucks and go into the draw. If he doesn't, then all 
all of his money's gone because uh, they purged those preference points on year two now, which again is really egregious. I mean, stuff happens in people's lives, you know, um, family issues, economical issues, you name it. So that that's ridiculous. And then on top of it, if you have written affirmation at the time of application that you are going to book with a licensed outfitter in the state, then you get to pretty much be guaranteed a tag. So Montana's had this voted down. They tried to get it through last year. They tried to allocate 60% of the tags to outfitted or to clients who had booked with outfitters for non-residents, which was a ridiculously high percentage of the tags. And that didn't go through. So then they figured out a backdoor solution to it. So basically now, you know, it's sort of devil be damned. We're going to go ahead and issue all the outfitter licenses that we want anyway. So it's messy. If you're going to hunt with an outfitter, be sure you talk to the outfitter before it's time to apply, get a contract, get ready to go. If you're going to go DIY, buy a preference point a full year in advance. And on the second year, you must go into the draw. You're going to lose those points and have to start over. I feel like we need to take a break and talk about something really positive and encouraging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what good news do you have for us, Jared? Tell us about a fun hunt from this fall. Oh, man. Well, you know, oddly enough, some of Alaska's opportunities are getting more economical, uh, comparatively speaking, than some of the lower 48 stuff. So, uh, once again, I went on a transported hunt on Kodiak, uh, and this transported hunt in particular is a boat-based transport. So you eat, sleep, and live on the boat, um, eat great meals, catch halibut and lingcod and rockfish, et cetera, and then hunt during the day. Again, it's a transported hunt, so they can't guide you. You, you, know, you basically say, yeah, we want to get dropped off in this bay, and they run you over in pairs of two in general with radios, and you just hunt for yourself for... Uh, you know, sick of black tailed deer. So I just did that in December. That's always a super fun hunt. I also in May did the same exact style of hunt for spot and stock black bear down out of Homer, Alaska. And I think between five of us hunters, we killed, you know, five great bears in like seven hours of combined hunting, including a couple of spot and stock bow kills. So it's just world-class hunting opportunity. And I think we brought home like hundred pounds of halibut fillets each or something like that too, on a five day hunt. And these things are like, you know, you're talking three to 4,000 bucks a piece to put these hunts together. And so on an upside, you know, there's still a lot of adventure to be had in Alaska, a lot of opportunity. I mean, you can buy up to three deer tags on Kodiak, uh, on that hunt. So you can hunt up to three deer and you're sleeping on a boat. So you're not snuggling the the Kodiak brown bears at night, all that kind of good stuff. So there's still a lot of opportunity. It's just, it, it's interesting that it's opening up in places where prior to the, you know, 20 years ago, you would have thought Alaska was one of the last places you'd want to go spend a good value quote unquote on. Yeah. yeah it's like that, just that gap is shrinking, right. Between the kind of that idea of a destination hunt and the reality uh, in some ways of just the expense of hunting in the lower 48 out of state. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to give all the other states justice. So we didn't hit some Western states here. We got Nevada and Utah and Wyoming. And uh, I do want to hit each of those or any other states we didn't cover that have any relevant changes to the listener. So uh, take us where you'd like from there, Jared. Okay. Well, we since we're trying to be a little bit positive, it is interesting. Mon- Montana did do a new traditional muzzleloader season. Uh, that was established in 2021 here for um, like right at the end of the rifle season. Uh, this year it was uh, December 11 to 19. So if you're a traditional muzzleloader person, it's an extra opportunity to get in the field, um, which is always interesting. I, I've done a lot of that style of hunting and it's kind of fun. So Montana did add an opportunity there. Um, Nevada, <laughs> yeah, I actually had my VP of operations got a Nevada elk tag that would have taken 2000 years for him to draw through Nevada's new turn back tag system. So that's kind of interesting where, you know, they, they changed the way that they uh, reallocate these tags that to out alternates. So stay tuned. Like, again, the best way to monitor these sort of things is either download the free hunt and fool app or just subscribe to our email list. Cause we're constantly telling everybody about this stuff, but 
you know, it's, it's probably too much information to give in one podcast here, but Nevada was interesting this year. We, I had several friends that got quote unquote, once in a lifetime tags through their new system. Um, Oregon's rolled things backwards. Again, this is going to put more pressure on Colorado. We were already talking about this two years ago. They eliminated all of their, you know, all of their archery, their over-the-counter archery deer tags on the eastern side of the state. They went from a general season allocation to controlled archery deer hunting. And then in 2022, uh, archery elk hunting in 13 units in eastern Oregon that used to be general are going to go to controlled as well. So basically putting pressure back onto Colorado saying all those individuals that used to hunt over the counter archery elk, for example, in Oregon, it's now going to be draw only in those 13 units. Ouch. I didn't hear about that. Yep. So that, like I said, that was kind of a two-year rollout last year. It was mule deer this year it's elk, but overall it's just putting more pressure on surrounding States. Um, let's see here. We already talked about Utah and trail cameras, uh, Wyoming does have some interesting changes coming up. Uh, we're, we're not sure how this is going to settle out. We think that the moose, sheep, and goat is going to go to a 90% to residents, 10% to non-residents split. Um, if that does happen, draw odds for those species in Wyoming are going to get even worse. What is uh, it currently? You said go to a 90-10. 80, uh, I believe 80-20 right now. Jeez. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean the odds are next to nothing at eighty twenty. So yeah, if they go if they go ninety ten, good luck. <laughs> yeah, it'll eliminate the vast majority of non-resident permits for for those species. Realistically speaking, so yeah, that's I mean, Wyoming was under heat to do it for elk, deer, antelope, and moose, sheep, goat. And kind of the compromise back to the residents was, all right, well, we'll just do it for moose, sheep, and goat. And then for elk, deer, and antelope, we'll leave it the same, which is weird already. As it is right now, it's 80% to non or to residents, 20% to residents for deer and antelope. And then oddly enough, 16% uh, go to non-residents for elk, 84-16 for elk, whereas it's 80-20 for deer and antelope. If that won't make your head spin, I don't know it will, but they're actually proposing moving elk to the 80-20 split as well, which would actually add more elk tags if that happens. But there's a lot of mud in the water for all of this to go through uh, before it's all said and done. But So this it, is a proposal, I think you said for 2023, correct? Uh, actually, 2021. I'm sorry, 2022. Oh, it is. It, w- it, w- it wouldn't be effective until the 2023 draw. That's correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking 2023 right. hunting season. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're correct. Okay. Um, so it, the, the important thing to remember here is all of this, again, started from the exact same spot. Residents complaining there's too many non-residents taking their tags and hogging up their opportunities. All of these changes almost across the board have come from resident pressure on commissions and legislators, legislative bodies to limit non-residents. Do the states have good data, like access to good data on that, the pressure, the the actual numbers? Oh boy. Don't get me started on this. So (laughs) um, I'm going to go off on a, on a tangent as it relates to that. So Idaho ironically enough is, is a pioneer in mandatory harvest reporting and I love them for it. I, I remember being so grumpy. I, you know, I grew up in Idaho, 25 years as a resident there, still a lifetime not, uh, resident license holder. I was so upset when they went to mandatory harvest reporting and they were, they were sticklers. If you didn't report your harvest, you, didn't, you were not eligible for tags the next year. And now doing what I do now, I'm so thankful that there are some states like Idaho, like New Mexico that are mandatory harvest report across all species. You would not believe how many states do not have mandatory harvest reporting. Montana being a great example of that. For some species, they do. Most sheep go. But for like deer, elk, antelope, you get a phone call from, you know, somebody who's calling a random list. They're getting a random sample. Did you hunt? How many days did you hunt? How many antelope did you see? Did you harvest? Yes or no. And then it's over. It's super wasteful. It's, it's ineffective. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So some states do have great data. Idaho, not only to, you know, can tell you how many non-residents hunted, 
the unit. They could tell you how many days each non-resident hunted, what the total number of non-resident days per unit was, et cetera. And granted, people can lie about that, but for the most part, yeah, I don't think that close. they do. You know, is that, and is so, that information of Idaho available to me? Can I get on Idaho Fish Game and see it? Yep. Yeah. I need to look Super straightforward. You can just yeah. Google Idaho um, elk harvest report data or whatever. And it'll, it'll take you into a series of, and, and they're super easy to read spreadsheets. They're the column headers are all sortable. So you can sort by the total number of non-residents, the total number of non-resident days hunted, you name it. It's super good data. So, but a lot of states are not mandatory reporting. And so you don't have as good a data. I don't like, uh, this question comes to mind and I'm not saying this as a commercial or anything. Um, I, I hear with all of these changes and opportunities getting harder for non-residents and at the same time, in many ways, things change on a frequent enough basis where it's hard as a hunter who's busy with life and everything else to stay up to date. I see the resources and knowledge and education from hunting full becoming more valuable. If that makes sense. <laughs> I would assume that you guys are seeing an increase in interest, maybe simply because of some of these issues, I would imagine. No, there's no question about it. I mean, it's kind of a catch 22, right? It's, it's literally how we put milk and eggs in our refrigerator, but at the same time in a perfect world, there would be more clarity at the state level. There'd be less need for organizations like us to, that are essentially trying to be a cliff notes version, helping people understand and navigate the processes more quickly and more thoroughly. But yeah, there's no question that as these complexities continue to rise, that the value of what we do also rises in kind. One thing that, uh, you know, anytime there's changes proposed, right. It, it's going to uh, having a different effect on different people. And again, there's different groups that have different interests and it becomes divisive, not even amongst hunters and non-hunters, but becomes divisive and amongst hunters themselves. Right. Um, no easy answer there, but can you kind of speak to reinforcing the importance of some sort of trying to find some sort of like unity and agreement on at least things that are positive because we could talk all day about divisive issues. Right. Um, but it's like more and more with things moving and with outside threats, it's like, it's really frustrating when hunters are shooting each other. Yeah. No, it's, it's scary that we're, and we live in an era where I think we tend to be more venomous than ever before probably more people need to get, well, never mind. I won't, <laughs> I won't go down the wild west. I could have finished that sentence for you. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of disrespect in the woods. Let me just leave it at that. And I think, you know, the respect and inspiration starts at the individual level period. And I think it starts with communication in the field. I mean, again, I'll use a, a very specific example uh, that happened this fall. I, I met my son who's just, you know, a broke high school teacher in Bozeman, Montana, second year teaching high school. He, he wants to fill a freezer bad. You know, I, I drive up with uh, Isaiah Joner, one of my hunt advisors here. We meet him and, and run up to North central Montana to hunt public land um, and or block management, which is private land that's managed for public access. Right. And on the second morning, we pull up to the block management spot we're going to go to, and there's somebody parked there already. And so we start to drive on by because we're out of respect, but there's also very limited, it's farmland and there's not a lot of spots that give you access, right? And so then we stop for a little bit and we're studying on X maps. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, we just really need to execute our plan. Let's go back and talk to this guy. Well, in the meantime, two more vehicles pull in all kind of simultaneously. So now there's like four of us, four vehicles, all at one little tiny trailhead, you know? And the reality is, I got out, walked over in the dark and introduced myself to each of the individuals, each of the different you know, vehicles and just said, hey, you know, we don't want to cause extra problems, but at the end of the day, we're all planning on hunting here. Can we all get along and play nice? Everybody was super respectful, et cetera. But it only takes one person to kind of rip in there while everybody else is getting their gear ready and jump out and storm off into the dark. And then everybody's going, well, what a jerk. And you know, so it's, it's really about learning to share and play nice in the in the toy box 
And not enough kids have learned that, but it's really an adult toy box that we're playing in. It's limited space. And to the extent that we can be nice to each other, I think it goes a long, long ways. Steve, you have anything else? Well, we have Jared's time. I know we're already uh, coming up on an hour here, but it's uh, always a good opportunity to talk to you, Jared. I didn't know if you had any questions, Steve. No, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. I just want, um, I don't know. Yeah. I just want, I just want data on all the hunter numbers. Are we making informed decisions off of actual stuff or is it just like you said, Jared perception? Well, and, and here's something to think about, right. And I would love for your listeners to take this, you know, and think about it, cogitate on it, get answer, get suggestions out in the formats that you can email, uh, you know, the can forms that, that go out, go to your local rack committee meetings, other places like that, that are making policy for wildlife Right now, the sad thing to me is that the only, nobody's coming up with creative solutions for hunter crowding. The answer is always raise prices, cut tax, period. Like literally across the board, that's the only answer that's ever forwarded. I'll use a state like Idaho as a great example. Now I'm a non-resident in Idaho, right? I mean, I have a lifetime resident hunting license, but I still got to pay my 900 plus dollars to get an archery tag and hunt elk every year in Idaho. If I'm lucky enough to get an elk tag anymore, which I'm still fine with. What I don't like is that the fact that Idaho hasn't maybe said, well, maybe instead of cutting all this opportunity, what if instead we, we put a little bit of a fence around it? So you've got a four-week season in Idaho for archery, August 30 to September 30. For, I'm talking archery, elk, and deer, general season units. Um, what, if the, you know, what if the first week and the last week were reserved for residents only? Or what if the last week was residents only, right? Nobody ever talks about those solutions, but the reality is if Idaho will look across the fence at New Mexico, for example, New Mexico has had two to three separate archery seasons for elk for as long as I can remember for most of their popular units. So non-residents are willing to take a two-week season or a week-long season and come out and put all of their eggs into one week-long basket. So there's ways to adjust this hunter crowding issue that don't just result in less tags more money for non-residents to spend. So I would love it if we started putting pressure on our commissions and our legislative bodies to start getting creative and say, all right, we need hunters. We need these bodies because if we don't have them, we don't have any voice at all. And the next thing you know, it's first it's bear hunting and then it's wolf hunting and then it's lion hunting and no hounds and no trapping. And it goes all down the same exact cycle. We've seen it in States that, you know, the more, uh, <clears throat> the less, the more politically active the states tend to be, the less hunting opportunity there tends to be. That's a really PC. I like you navigated thing. that. That was nice. Yeah. You see how careful I was there? <laughs> I had that song. I threw it out of the tree for a change. But the point is, is why can't we be more creative? And there are ways to do it, uh, whether it be weapon restriction, whether it be a specific non-resident restriction, you name it. There's ways that we can keep the people in the woods that are in the woods without just saying, Hey, you just can't come to our state anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I like that. That's good advice. I'd buy an Idaho non-resident archery oak tag. If I could only hunt a week long in the season, I'd st- I can only come for a week anyway. I would buy it. And, and if, if I knew that, you know, from September 23 to 30, it's residents only, I'm not going to complain about that. Mm-hmm. And I think the residents would be elated because then it'd be even less crowding at that point. Yeah, it'd be massive. But, but we never explore those options. And like I said, if states will look around over their shoulders at other states and, and choose the best practices that are coming from the states around them, they'll probably see some really good ways to solve problems in their own home state. Awesome. Well, Jared, this is, uh, it's been good. It's, um, even if, you know, some of what we covered is, is not positive, it's always <laughs> good to be informed and hopefully listeners and uh myself included take what we don't like and it encourages us to be more engaged moving forward so i appreciate you sharing the time that was a lot of information uh stuffed in there and once again i think what you guys are doing is really important with huntful and uh both the free resources as well as what guys can get from becoming a member and i know you guys have made that very easy to kind of go see but just one final hey go check us out here what would you leave folks with Yeah. I mean, for as little as four bucks a month, you can be a digital member, gets you access to 1500 plus pages of content that we create on your behalf each and every year. 
Uh, we break down 20 different state draw systems in doing that. We give you the Cliff Notes version, everything you need to know to get tags, build points, enter the draw system, you name it, uh, in addition to tons of breakdowns on individual units where you should and should be focusing your time. Like, we'd love to have you. Again, it's four bucks a month. It's less than a star cup of Starbucks. So um, kind of foolish not to take advantage of that if you are an adventuresome Western big game wannabe or current participant. Awesome. Thanks, Jared. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. I hope that this episode helped you plan your 2022 hunting season and that you have some great adventures to come. Once again, we appreciate you guys tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive future episodes automatically. And if you would like to get in contact with us directly, share your question, suggestion, or comment via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'll talk to you soon.